Turn me, with me, if you will, to uh, Luke chapter 10. As I was thinking about this passage this morning, um, we'll be in verses 25 through 42, uh, and, and the, the title of our series is Follow Me, and so we're, we're studying what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. Um, and um, as I was thinking about how the, the characters, and I, I use that word carefully, cautiously, because when I say the word characters, it feels like it's fiction, right? We're going to be talking specifically about uh, Jesus and then three other people, a lawyer, Martha, and Mary. And we're going to talk about all three of them today. Um, But they are real people, but they also have specific characteristics that kind of make them characters. And uh, some of you may know, many of you don't know. Uh, Oh, by the way, the reason that Tim's not up here preaching this morning is because he was exposed to COVID earlier this week, and so you get the worship leader. Um, Yeah, it's all good. Yeah, yeah, I'll take it, I'll take it. Thank you. (laughs) But what you may not know about me is that my degree is not actually, actually in worship leadership I have a degree in musical theater, of all things, uh, which was intentional, of all things. And uh, one of the things that you learn in musical theater is how to do character analysis. And, uh, And so whenever I am studying scripture, I can't help myself, but when I see different people with different characteristics, I treat them kind of like characters. And we're gonna see that a little bit in this passage. And one of the the things that you may start to notice, I'm gonna ruin all forms of entertainment media for you right now, is that as as you're dealing with characters in media, in film, what have you, um, a lot of the times you can figure out what someone is leading with, the most important thing to somebody, simply by the way they physically walk or the way they act. And so, since I'm a stage actor specifically, we talked a lot about walks, right? So, for example, if somebody walks into the room like Charlie Chaplin, he is leading with his feet first. It, is a, it gives you a sense that this man is not in control of himself, that something is pulling him along, right? Uh, however, if you are in a romantic comedy and the, the, the male protagonist walks in, he walks in like this with his chest out because he leads with his heart. He is very open. And everybody on the tech team walks around like this because they're really smart, right? <laughs> Every single person who works on a computer on TV walks around with their head first, right? Or they're always hunched over a keyboard. And so there's, they value the intellect. And so you'll, you'll notice this on your TV shows. If you have a character who is valuing intellect, valuing knowledge above everything else, and is supposed to be really smart, whenever they go somewhere, their head will go first. Isn't that interesting? And it's, it's an intentional thing that a good actor or actress will do in order to give you a little bit of a subtle hint towards what is most important to that character. And so in, this, in, in, in the characters that we're going to talk about today, we're going to have Jesus, who is the perfect balance of all personality types. The perfect balance. He walks straight up and down, leading with his whole body. And then you have Mary, who leads with her heart, Martha, who leads with her hands, and a lawyer 
who leads with his intellect. Okay? So as we, as we read this passage of Scripture really quick, this is, this is a big chunk, okay? So we're going to be reading for a little bit. Gather yourself a little bit. Prepare yourself. We're going to be reading all the way through the Good Samaritan story and the story of Mary and Martha because I want you to see the whole picture and get the context of why Luke would put these stories back to back because they all kind of mesh together in a pretty cool way. So we're going to start in verse 25 of Luke chapter 10. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test. Him is Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, set him on his own animal, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister called Mary, who sat down at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care My sister has left me to serve alone. Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these stories. Lord, I pray that you would uh, reveal to us the truth of your word. Holy Spirit, speak through your word now. We humbly submit ourselves to the authority of your word. And we ask that you transform us by the renewing of our minds, Lord. Thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now to give you a quick recap where we are in the book of Luke. uh, Jesus has just sent out and had returned to him 72 disciples who were going out to proclaim the gospel. And Tim briefly mentioned last week something that I thought was really worth sharing again. And that's that when the gospel is mentioned before Jesus goes to the cross, it seems, it feels a little different than after he goes to the cross. So in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when Jesus says the word gospel, he oftentimes is talking about the kingdom, right? We've talked a lot about the kingdom of God ushering in a new kingdom. 
But then once you get into the epistles and we talk about the gospel, it is Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus was resurrected, came back to life, and has now uh, living as, as proof that he has conquered sin and death and the punishment for our sin. And not only that, but that he has given us his Holy Spirit, which Jesus himself said was better than having him physically present, having Jesus standing right here, having the Holy Spirit in me is better than having Jesus standing right there. And it is the same gospel. The gospel in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is the same gospel as the gospel of the epistles because the Holy Spirit present in our lives helps us to usher in a new kingdom. The kingdom is highly, highly, highly important. And through repentance and sanctification and becoming more like Christ through the presence of the Holy Spirit in us, we are ushering in a new kingdom that we have access to now. And so that is what we are talking about. This upside-down kingdom that is a complete mystery to the world. In fact, in verse 21, I don't think this is in the slides, but um, when the 72 come back, Jesus says, In the same hour he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit, saying, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, yet revealed them to little children. And we are about to see that play out, especially in the story of this lawyer who is testing Jesus, okay? The, the, the wise and understanding have a hard time grasping the reality of a new kingdom with different priorities, okay? And so today, we are approaching one of the biggest questions that you can ask, which is how, how do we please God? How, how do we... What do we do in order for God to find pleasure in us? And we are going to approach it with three different characters. Mary, who approaches Jesus through relationship. Martha, who approaches Jesus through acts of service. And the lawyer, who approaches Jesus through his own intellect and knowledge of the truth. Now, um, it was really tempting as I was putting this message together to want to save the relationship bit for the very end because that's clearly the right answer, right? Mary is the only one who is commended by Jesus by her, by, by her actions and her response to his presence in the room, right? And so I kind of wanted to save it for the end and be like, and it's relationship. But I, I think it's stronger if we actually start with Mary and work our way backwards through this story and compare how Mary's simple response differs from that of the others. You with me? All right, let's get into it. Um, verses 38 and 39. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed, her into his, uh, welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. That's all that it says that she did. She sat at his feet and listened to his teaching. 
Now, this was a little bit remarkable in that day that a woman would sit at the feet of a teacher um, because students sat at the feet of teachers. And, and women were not allowed to be taught the Torah. They, they, they had access to the Torah, which is the scripture that they had at that time, which was about the first five books of the Bible. They had access to it, but they could not be taught the Torah. In fact, it was, um, it was, it was unheard of. Uh, there was uh, rabbinical teachings that, these, um, that, that, would, that were quoted to say, may the words of the Torah be burned. They should not be handed over to women. And the man who teaches his daughter the Torah teaches her extravagance. This was not a culturally appropriate thing that was happening, that Mary would sit at the feet of a teacher in order to learn from the word of God. But the implication is that she is sitting at Jesus' feet in rapt attention to the word and to Jesus. And, and this just t- this shows us the, the, the commitment and the value that Mary placed on having a relationship with God Almighty. There was a risk involved with this simple action of sitting in Jesus' presence and listening to his teaching. A high, high value placed on relationship and intent listening. And, and this is, and Jesus allowing her to sit at his feet was radical and, and a complete dismissal of the social norms in order to make this declaration that there was not a limitation for women in the kingdom of God. So let's, with that in mind, I want you to listen to Martha's response. Verse 40. But Martha was distracted with much serving. She went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. I love that this passage of Scripture says that she was distracted with much serving. Because isn't that just so true? She was in the very earshot of the words of God in her own home. She was the one who invited Jesus into her home. And she was in earshot of the greatest truth that she could ever have access to, and she was distracted and unable to stop and listen. And the point is, sometimes we can get so caught up with doing things for God that we are completely missing out on a chance to connect with God. We cannot allow our desire to do the right thing overwhelm our desire for the right person. She, she also takes on a pretty passive-aggressive way to vent her frustration. Um, first of all, she doesn't talk to the person she has a problem with, which is Mary. 
she talks to Jesus and kind of is like, hey, don't you think this isn't cool? Like, you should, like, shake things up a little bit and, like, have her help me a little bit. Uh, so she's passing great. She's avoiding conflict, but also kind of throwing shade at the same time. And, and ultimately, she's self-righteous. She's elevating herself above Jesus even and saying, isn't the right thing for Mary to be helping me? But what was the one thing? Jesus said, one thing. Mary has chosen one thing that is necessary. And what is that? Relationship with Jesus. Now, I resonate with Martha, okay? Like, I, 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 can anybody, I, this is interactive. Anybody else resonate a little bit with Martha? You get caught up so much in the good things that it's hard to really feel connected to Christ sometimes. Now, when, when Jason, how Jason reacted to the beginning of the pandemic was not healthy, okay? There's a little, little bit of real talk, okay? Uh, I actually got excited about the prospect of us doing online services because it meant that my workday got real busy. I turned into a workaholic really quick, and that was absolutely intentional on my part because... If I was busy, 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 I didn't need to worry about, and I didn't have mental space to think about how it felt like my world was falling apart. Anybody else turn into a workaholic? Just me, huh? Okay, no, we got a couple, all right. It's the same thing. It's the same, on a a micro scale, right? Like, I, I just poured myself into something that was a good thing. Our church needed to have some form of online service in order for us to, yeah, but but I did it to such an extent that it was really damaging to my relationship with my family and my relationship with God. And it's still, even now, I feel like I'm recovering from that. I'm still shifting my life around in ways in order to heal from that workaholism and to grow in my relationship with Jesus, with my community, with my family. And the fact of the matter is, it wasn't just that Jesus wanted Mary at his feet. He wanted Martha at his feet. And he wants you at his feet. And this is nothing to take away from the, from the good things that we do. Our acts of service are absolutely necessary, and they are, they are absolutely commanded by Scripture. But if they are not preceded by a deep and meaningful relationship with Jesus, they're going to be kind of void. So what do we do? How do we grow in our relationship with Christ? Um, I like very simple application points. So I'm going to give you a few very simple application points that if even now, before we're even at the altar call, if you want to know, how do, I gr- how do I do this? How do I grow in my relationship with Christ? Here are some things that you can do. One, it's going to take time. It's going to take some time somewhere out of your life. John 15.4 is a great passage for you to study in order to prioritize time spent 
in the word time spent with Jesus because um, there is high value placed on abiding in him. If we want to grow, if we want to see the fruits of the spirit come up out of our lives, then we need to be connected to the vine. Scripture talks about a vine and branches and we're the branches. And if a branch is cut off, it can't grow any fruit. It has no way to produce fruit. And so if you want to see true, beautiful acts of service coming up out of your life in the same way that fruit is produced in your life, then you need to be connected to and abiding with the vine. The second way to grow in relationship with God is to study his word. Um, Hebrews 4.12 says that the word, word is alive. The word is a living thing. The word is a powerful thing. And he, it's a, he speaks to us. This is the very words of God. And, and do, we, do we treat it like these are the words of God? Remind yourself again just how, how important it is that, that God has spoken to you. God speaks to us in a number of different ways, but this is the first way. This is, this, is, this is step one. Get into his word. Third thing that you can do is to pray. Philippians 4, 8, be anxious for nothing, but in everything through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. God wants to hear from you. God cares deeply, cares deeply what is going on in your heart and in your life. Talk to him. And then step four is listening. Isaiah 55, three, listen that you may live. This is the one that is, it might be a little bit different for you. Um, There's a lot of different ways that we can listen to God, and one of them is definitely through the word. One of them is definitely through conversation in community with other believers, right? Um, how to engage and connect with other believers. But another way is just by shutting your mouth, shutting the noise off, and listening to him. How many times have we prayed and asked God to reveal himself to us or to answer a, a prayer or to give us direction on something and then we quickly go from that thing to Facebook or that thing to a phone conversation or that thing to the TV or what have you. And we just fill our lives with these distractions without ever creating a space where we can listen. So now let's talk briefly about the lawyer. I'm going to read verses 25 and 26. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? First of all, the implication is that when this lawyer stands up, everyone else is seated, including Jesus. Jesus is sitting down, so this guy stands himself up, elevates himself above God Almighty in order to put him to the test. 
little point of advice. If you're ever going to test God, do it from a seated position. You'll have less far to fall when he knocks you over, right? So this lawyer, he is, uh, the way we think about law now is different from how this lawyer acted in the first century as a Jewish lawyer. He was a scribe. He was a, uh, an expert in the Torah, these first five books of the Bible. And he, uh, and that's how, that was their law. He wasn't an expert in Roman law. He was an expert in Jewish law, the Torah, okay? And he had a high regard for the law. He would have memorized forwards and backwards the first five books of the Bible, word for word. And so he stands up, challenges Jesus' authority, and then physically and metaphorically elevates himself above Jesus in order to test Jesus. Now, um, there's a couple different ways to take this, but I believe that this guy actually knew Jesus' answer to this question. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Um, in Mark 12, 28 and 31, uh, that's Jesus' original answer of co- combining Deuteronomy 6, 4, which is the Shema, and Leviticus 19, 18, um, which is love your neighbor as yourself. And, uh, and the, the fact of the matter is there, there wasn't anything, there, wasn't, there was no such thing as publishing back in the first century. And so the way that great ideas were passed around was in order for a teacher to say them over and over and over and give the same lesson time and time again. And so the reason that this same interaction happens in a couple different ways throughout the course of Scripture could be a different take on the same story, or it could be the fact that Jesus often was asked this question and often gave this answer. And so Jesus kind of proves this point by making the lawyer answer his own question. And so he says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He says to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all your soul and all of your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. He said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So his answer is two different parts of Old Testament, of the Torah, um, combined together, which, of course, Jesus was the first one to do that. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 says, you shall love the Lord with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and all your mind. I want to break this apart a little bit because it it, it's important to know the fullness of this guy's answer and the, the understanding that this man should have had about the very words that he was saying, okay? Um, it's really broken into, in, in Hebrew, uh, the Shema is broken into three words, heart, soul, and strength, and mind. So let's talk about those a little bit. Um, the heart is, is both a physical part of the body to the ancient Hebrew, um, and it is an, all of your emotions and your affections, uh, you, all of your thoughts come out of your heart, and it, it's where you make your choices. Your, your heart is where you make your choices that are motivated by desire, okay? 
And so when, it, when the Shema says, you shall love the Lord with all of your heart, it says everything within you, all of, all of the emotions and all of the desires and all of the hopes and fears and dreams that you have that motivate you to action, those should be directed towards God perfectly. You should love the Lord your God with all your soul. Now, um, soul is an interesting word. Uh, it's, it's nefesh in Hebrew, and, and soul is both, we have this idea that like our soul is like the water inside of this water bottle, right? And then at death, it is released out of the container, which is our body, right? And that's actually a, a, a Greek concept that was not true for the ancient Hebrews, the, the soul most closely is related to the throat, the area where things that allow us to live come in and breath comes out. And so it's not that you have a soul, it's that you are a soul. You with me? Okay. And so it's, it's both your physical essence um, and, and your entire being the, the combination of physical and spiritual all, of, all together. And so everything about my existence, right? So with the, with the heart, we have everything that motivates me. And then with the soul, we have everything that is part of my existence. All the parts of my body, all the parts of my inner being that are in unison with each other. Everything that I am. Everything that drives me, everything that I am, love the Lord completely and perfectly. Now, the last one, strength and mind, is in, uh, in Hebrew, it's one word, which is me'od, which means muchness, which is fun. Love the Lord with all of your muchness. Uh, and, and so this is the hardest one to translate, and Jesus is actually the one who translates it into strength and and mine. So this is everything in your power, okay? Both spiritually and physically, everything that, uh, every ability and opportunity and thought and resource that you have is an opportunity to love God, okay? So we have heart, which is the, the inner motivation. We have soul, which is our entire being, and then the combination of those two things, that the power that we have on earth, little though it may be, all of our muchness, all of our energy, with all of that, you are to love the Lord. So I, I wanted to take the time to, to, sim, to, to go through how complicated that one passage is, and because from here on out, I'm just going to talk about it as part one. All right, that's part one of the lawyer's answer. That's part one of Jesus' answer to this very important question of how do you in inherit eternal life is we can sum it up by saying love God. But it feels a little cheap just to say love God because it's not just loving with a feeling. It's everything that motivates me, love God. Everything that I have, love God. Any power that I gain on this earth, with that I'm going to use it to love God. Okay, so part one of the answer is love God with everything. 
And then part two is Leviticus 19 and 18, and that is to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this comes with an assumption that you love yourself. My deep dive into workaholism was not loving to myself. The only way we can actually love ourselves and love ourselves well is by finding our identity in Christ. And this is accomplished by reminding myself of God's sovereignty through my relationship investments with him and his people. So even in this context of loving our neighbor, it still involves a requirement that we have a connection to loving God first. And sometimes it's, it's hard to love ourselves, and then sometimes it's, it's, it's easy to see how this plays out. I've got three kids, fourth one on the way, and uh, even this week, multiple times, I've asked my sons, is that how you want your brother to treat you? Is that how you want to be treated by your brother? It's just such the simplest question to ask, and it has immediate results and immediate response from my kids. Because usually, one of them is being selfish and won't share, and I say, is that how you want him to treat you? No. It is immediately identifiable. We want others to approach us sacrificially, and so the expectation is that we will do the same. So this guy says the right answer. But Jesus' response to him is not really what he wanted. He wanted an attaboy, a congratulations, but what Jesus said was, go and do it. You gave the right answer. Love God, part one. Part two, love people. That is one way to inherit eternal life, is to do those perfectly. Now go do it. And that's why he responds in verse 28, verse 29, but he desiring to justify himself. He knew. The point of that verse is he knew. He already knew that he wasn't doing it. He already knew that he was incapable of perfectly loving God and perfectly loving people. And the fact of the matter is in this upside down kingdom, the, 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 the call for this man to repent of his sins was a call for him to recognize that he can't do it. To, to recognize in humility, I can't do that. I can't love you, God, perfectly. I can't love my neighbor as I love myself. I'm always gonna come out on top in that situation. 
But instead, he goes in arrogance to justify himself because he thought he was at least close to perfect. Because he had knowledge of the scriptures. And and nobody publicly could say that he didn't keep the law. And Jesus himself even said that he had, he knew the right answer. So why did he have to tell him to go and do it too? This attitude of self-justification is like, is, is this lawyer putting on the judge's robes in front of Jesus. There was one little caveat. If he could say that he did love his neighbor perfectly, he could justify himself in front of Jesus, which is incredibly narrow-sighted of him. And so he asked Jesus this one question, who is my neighbor? I hope that you are familiar with this parable. Um, Of course, we already read it, and uh, I'm going to go pretty quickly through the last little bit of it here. Um, But I I just wanted to give you some of the context for understanding uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan to kind of help you understand just where the shock factor was in this story. Um, And the context is that in Hebraic storytelling, um, the role of three things was very popular. And so, in this story, the expectation would have been, because this, the guy asking the question is a lawyer, he's, he's a pretty high-ranking dude in, in that day, and so here's this really high-ranking guy, a priest comes by, this dude who's been beat up. A priest comes by, super high-ranking, and he walks by. And then the second level of guy who is probably about the same level as importance as this lawyer comes by, this guy who's beat up, and he walks by. And then the natural third would have been the Jewish everyman. A fisherman, like one of Jesus' disciples, comes up and he helps the man. That would have been the natural third step in this line of storytelling. And so the people around him were expecting Jesus to use this as an opportunity to stick it to the man, right? All of the injustices inside of the church and politically that were happening right now, they thought that Jesus was going to elevate the every man and that everybody would feel really good afterwards and it would be like they were watching Rudy, but it wasn't the case. Now the priest, why would the priest walk by the man who was beaten and left for dead. Um, this, one would have, this one would have felt kind of normal in the story. The priest would have been on, it says that it was, he was on his way from uh, Jericho to Jerusalem. So the idea is that this is a priest from Jericho going to Jerusalem in order to offer sacrifices for the sins of those he served in Jericho. And so, The priest was choosing the greater good of paying for the sins of many while leaving a man to die on his own. Because if that priest had touched the beaten man when he died, then he would be unclean and unable to perform the ceremonies that he was going to perform 
in Jerusalem. And so we can't be unclean. And so this idea of love, love God and the, the holiness of God and do not become unclean, that overwhelmed part two of loving people. And in, it, this would be like Franklin Graham, all right? If you want to put somebody in the priest spot in your, in your mind in order to like modernize this, that would be like Franklin Graham walking by this dude and not helping him, okay? It was supposed to be that kind of shocking. The Levite, he is high-ranking, but not as high-ranking as the priest. He's an overseer of the temple services, and this would be like Jason Hunley, not senior pastor, but a kind of associate pastor-ish role walking by this man, okay? Um, and this is the character that the lawyer would most resonate with in the story. But then a Samaritan. Let's read verse 33 through 35 together. And the next day he took, oh wait, 33. Uh, there it is. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and saw him and he had compassion. You guys remember a few weeks ago that the disciples tried to call down like Sodom and Gomorrah style fire on somewhere? That was a Samaritan village. And so when Jesus says, but a Samaritan, it would have been like hush gone over this crowd. All the oxygen sucked out of the room. <gasps> because even his disciples didn't like Samaritans. There was like a 400-year Hatfield and McCoy-style feud going on between the Samaritans and the Jews at the time. Um, it was said that if you ate a Samaritan's bread, it would be like eating swine's flesh. Okay? They didn't like these people. Okay? They would actively pray that God wouldn't listen to their prayers nor forgive their sins. This, was, this is a, a level of hatred that I have a really hard time connecting with because I kind of like fall on the side of like, man, like what if a Taliban leader and I sat down at coffee? I think he'd like me afterwards, you know? Like, I'm a likable guy. Like, hey, come on, you know? I, I, I'm very much a live at peace with all men. And so I don't really, I, I have a hard time. I couldn't come up with somebody for you to put in this place because I hope that there's nobody in your life that you hate as much as the Jews hated the Samaritans. And so this is radical, this radical generosity from the Samaritan in this story is Jesus condemning racial discrimination in the kingdom outright. Let me say that again. This is Jesus condemning racial discrimination in the kingdom outright. The word for compassion isn't just a feeling sorry. The word for compassion is a gut-wrenching emotion.
My son Wyatt broke his arm this week. He's walking around with a blue cast on and very proud of it. Complains that it itches. I didn't think to put oil and wine on it, though. But I guess that helped in this story. Samaritan sets the man on his own animal, sends him to an inn. He gives the innkeeper two denarii, which would have been over 20 days' worth of full-time care, and then promises more when he comes back in order to see this man brought back to full health. The idea is that this man was so, if this man was a Jew, which is the implication in the story, that he was so in such bad shape that he was unable to refuse the Samaritan's help. Because culturally, he would have died rather than allow the Samaritan to help him. So he wasn't even strong enough to push the man away. Deep, sacrificial, radical generosity. And this reveals the lawyer's inability to keep the law that he himself summed up. Jesus was saying, even if you could get part one right, you are radically out of line in part two. And therefore, you cannot inherit eternal life. Love for God, or rather the knowledge of things about God, the knowledge of things about God, did nothing to transform this man into a man who can actually love and live like God requires. The whole point of this story is to show the lawyer his own sin. Because, like we said at the beginning, knowledge of God without a relationship with God can never bring God pleasure. It will be just as void as acts of service without relationship. This is really important because uh, uh, the relationship with God requires humility. It just does. It requires us to come to grips with our sin and the realization that we cannot do it on our own. We need someone else to take the propitiation for our sin. Propitiation means uh, the, the wrath of a vengeful God needs to fall somewhere. And Jesus is hanging on the cross, taking it for us. There is a big eternal difference between knowing about God and knowing God. So let's recap really quick. The band can come on up. We're going to sing here in just a second. The lawyer thought 
that knowing the right things and looking the part would please God. Martha thought that service and sacrifice would please God. But Mary pursued relationship with God and was rewarded with knowledge. What was she sitting at his feet learning? About the scripture. And she was rewarded with a servant's heart. Incredibly sacrificial servant's heart. In John 12, 7, she is the one who anoints Jesus with $35,000 worth of perfume right before he goes to the cross. So if we really want to know God, and if we really want to do good things for God, we're going to have to start humbly at his feet in relationship with him. It's interesting, there are two characters that are found standing in front of Jesus. The lawyer stands up, puts him to the test. Martha stands up, complains to him about his, her sister. I want to give us an opportunity right now to sit at Jesus' feet. We're going to be singing a song called Goodness of God. And um, Tara and I have been talking a lot about how much we love the bridge of the song, which just says, your goodness is running after, it's running after me. And that simply means that God, and all of this talk about our responsibility to love God and love people, there is an eternal God who wants that with you. He, he wants a relationship with you. He wants to pursue you deeply and richly. And so the altar is open, um, available to talk at length about establishing that relationship with God for the first time or how to grow in it. But I want you to know that he is pursuing you just like the father in the prodigal son story, running after you, begging you, dive in deeper in relationship with me. Because the things that you feel like you're lacking in life, whether it be status or the ability to serve or the ability to know about him, whatever you're lacking, it's going to be found in relationship with Christ. Amen? Amen. All right, let's sing this together. It's called Goodness of God. I invite you to take whatever posture you would like if you want to stay seated or if you want to, if you want to stand. Um, you're more than welcome. Can I have the keyboard on? Amen. I love you, Lord. Oh, your mercy never fails me. All my days I've been held in. From the moment that I wake up until I lay my head, I will sing of the goodness of God. And 
been faithful And all my life you have been so, so good With every breath that I am able I will sing the goodness of God I love your voice You have led me through the fire In darkest night You are close like no other I've known you as a father I've known you as a friend I have lived in the goodness of God all my life and all my life you have been faithful and all my life you have been so so good with every breath that I am able I will see the goodness of God
the goodness of God. Yes, I will sing the goodness of God. Oh God, you are good. You are so, so good. And your mercy endures forever. Oh, I said you're good and your mercy endures forever. Mercy endures forever. Father, we thank you that you saw it fit to send your son to save a wretch like me. And then that you would send your Holy Spirit to live in me that I may never be alone that I may never be without your words, that I may never be abandoned, that I'll never be forsaken. You are a God that I want to know. You are a God who is pursuing me, and I want to know. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord, Lord turn his face to you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.